This is not the media. This is hell. And you know this is not the media because while the establishment news media is reporting on the allegedly historic promises made at the UN Climate Summit in Glasgow, today on This is Hell we will be discussing with our guests East Africa's economic development plan based on, you guessed it, fossil fuels and the drilling for oil in environmentally sensitive areas. More than 12,000 families will be displaced from their ancestral lands to make way for the pipeline. They were promised to be fairly compensated for the land, and many hoped this would change their lives for the good. However, many of the people displaced have been waiting for their compensation for three years. What they're getting for their land is a pittance compared to its value. Not that those displaced had much of a choice. The agreement signed by the governments of Uganda and Tanzania with French oil giant Total and China National Offshore Oil Corporation, which will also have an impact on the Democratic Republic of Congo, allegedly promised fair compensation and so much more that doesn't seem to be coming to fruition and who knows, maybe wasn't even in the final agreement. The pipeline could be a threat to the entire region as it will cross the basin of Lake Victoria, Africa's largest lake, which is an essential watershed for more than 40 million people and feeds into the Nile. Yes, of course, there have been protests, but Uganda insists those protests protests are unauthorized and therefore illegal. However, there has been some success as the anti-pipeline campaign has led to two of Total's key financiers, Barclays and Credit Suisse, to deny any intention of funding the East African crude oil pipeline. The world is finally acknowledging the threat of greenhouse gas emitting fossil fuels. Meanwhile, in Africa and elsewhere, governments, as well as major international banks and financial institutions, are still bankrolling the fossil fuel industry with subsidies. We'll try to wrap our heads around what's happening with the East Africa crude oil pipeline in a few minutes when we speak with journalist Alex Tumimbise, who wrote the floodlight article, No Power to Stop It, Optimism Turns to Frustration Over East African Pipeline. Alex reports from Kijungo, Tanzania for floodlight, and will be speaking to us today from Western Uganda. Floodlight is a nonprofit news organization that partners with local outlets and The Guardian to investigate the corporate and ideological interests holding back climate action. Emily Holden contributed to this report. She will also be joining us. Emily is founder and editor of Floodlight. Emily is an investigative environmental journalist with a decade of reporting experience in Washington, D.C. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. It's Tuesday, so producing is Alexander Jerry. Alex has your nightmare of everything going wrong in your home from your furnace, <laughs> dying to your kid having contact with someone who tested positive for COVID. Has any of your nightmare finally ended? Yeah, I'm uh, marking a new holiday tradition of uh, the third, and probably the third year in a row, that my oven broke within 48 hours of Thanksgiving. So, <laughs> so I will be at the, I will be upstairs at Carrie's tomorrow cooking Thanksgiving dinner at night. No kidding. 
You're going to be uh, cooking so. up here, huh? Well, I don't have an oven anymore. <laughs> wow. Well, luckily, I just donated a ton of our old pots and pans over here, but you should check them to see if they're any good and oh. see if they're worth using. I'm still freaking out about traveling for the upcoming uh, holiday, and not just traveling, but traveling to one of the hottest of hot spots of increasing COVID-19 infections, God's Little Mitten, Michigan. Jeez, I can't believe I'm going there. From all the guidance I've seen offered by government agencies, hospitals, and media outlets, everything should be fine. But, you know, it's because we're having a small gathering of only six people. All of us are vaccinated. Two of the four adults already have their boosters. Unfortunately, the two adults who have not received the booster are my girlfriend and myself. We are hoping to get boosted before we leave town, but we've been trying to find a place to get the booster. Every place we've contacted so far has told us they do not have any appointments until December, and the places that have walk-ins have long, long lines. It would be no big deal if, uh, to wait in lines, but the hours for walk-ins are short, and we both are working. So the likelihood is we will not have boosters before we leave town. So yeah, I'm still freaking out about the virus, and I'm not sure how much I will feel like celebrating when I'm constantly concerned about getting inf infected. But more important than my deliberations or the appropriateness of celebrating during a pandemic. Alex, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what job are you not applying for? What job are you not applying for? And uh, I got Alex and Emily online. Awesome. Uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. We do not accept any commercial money. We do not uh, take any grants. And we do not make enough profits to be a not-for-profit. We can't even afford to be a not-for-profit. So show your support by going to thisishell.com, clicking on support, and seeing all the different ways you can support This Is Hell. We have a This Is Hell trucker's cap, a winter beanie, a coffee mug, a t-shirt, a tote bag, and so face mask, and so much more. Just go to thisishell.com and click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email chuck at thisishell.com, or actually, during today's show, email alex at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's Tuesday show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff asks, aside from the way things are, what do we really have to complain about? Alex will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Alex and Emily on the East Africa pipeline. Again, the question from hell is, what job are you not applying for? What job are you not applying for? We are looking for new board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in running the board, as Jess and Richard and Alex do, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. If you'd like to join us here on This Is Hell, email me, chuck at thisishell.com. We're looking for people who can run the board anyway, anywhere from once a week here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, with shows being air, air, airing weekdays at a... 10 a.m. approximately. We are very flexible, and if you can only do it a couple of times a month, we can work within your schedule. This is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well. Let's say you're a musician and you need a place to mix music, or let's say you're a podcaster yourself or want to start a podcast. You can do that here as well. This position does come with a 
living wage unbelievably a living wage we actually pay people a living wage if you are interested in becoming a board operator here on this is hell email me at chuck at this is hell.com of course with this position you do need to live in the chicago area however if you're look also seeking help Sorry. However, we are also seeking help from those of you who can work with us remotely, stuff that can be done from wherever you live. For instance, every time we post a show online and at our site, we include a poll quote from the interview to give visitors a little taste of what they're about to hear. Again, if you are interested in becoming a producer here on our show or interested in contributing online, email us at chuck at thisishell.com. And we're also looking for more help with rebuilding our archives and our website. And listener Pete emailed us saying he was interested in working on the show or is is interested in working on the show. As Sebastian emailed us last week, Pete writes, Hey folks, I'm a pretty avid and or loyal listener of the show, and it's very unfortunate that I do not live in the Chicago area, born and raised in various Philly suburbs, because joining you folks as a board operator would be the perfect second job for me. I'm currently seeking opportunities to supplement my current job, and I'd rather not participate in the capitalist system more than I'm already forced to. I have a communications degree from LaSalle University in Philadelphia, and I'm currently working as a manager of a behavioral health program. I know you folks are looking for people to help with the poll quotes from the website, and I'm wondering if you have any opportunities for someone like me to both help you and the program and earn a little extra money. No worries either way if the answer is no, and I'd still like to help in any way that I can. I very much look forward to hearing back from you and keep up the excellent work. Thank you, Pete. If you are interested, as Pete and Philly is, either running the board or doing remote work, email us at chuck at thisishell.com, and we will get in touch with you as soon as possible to see what we can do to have you join us here on This Is Hell. We also got a guest suggestion from listener John S., who writes, Hey Chuck, hope all is well in hell land on land stolen from the natives. Your interview with Ajay Singh Chaudhry a couple weeks ago on the extractive circuits of capitalism was blowing my mind. I may need to listen again and concentrate to get all the ideas that your interview summoned from the genius. That being said, I wondered if you noticed that Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz published Not a Nation of Immigrants, Settler Colonialism, White Supremacy, and a History of Erasure and Exclusion. Your interview with her several years ago about an indigenous people's history of the United States was another one that merited repeated listening. Her new book, in a sense, goes even deeper and really brings some ideas together on the U.S. essence as a settler colonial nation that is very compelling seems like it's right up your alley and that you would offer the author an opportunity to explain her ideas in the meantime stay beautiful or is that only jeff who is beautiful best wishes john thanks for the reminder john we have roxanne on our list of possible upcoming guests and we would love to have her back on the show that said when roxanne was on most recently to talk about her book on the second amendment the conversation lasted nearly an hour and i think i asked a total of three questions so i figured the conversation was a complete flop but then after the show i got so many emails from listeners and had some people approach me during a meet and greet saying it was one of the best interviews we had done in a while i'm not sure what that says about me but it says a lot about Roxanne thanks again John for reminding us and Alex we really should try to get Roxanne back on the show even if it means me doing several hours of research and only getting to ask three questions also last night we got uh, something in the mail another print from the amazing people at Kennedy Prince in the McDougal Hunt neighborhood on Detroit's east side they uh, the print they sent us this time has the very 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 timely Nina Simone quote 
you have to learn to get up from the table when love is no longer being served. And if love is not being served at your table over the holiday, there's no real reason to give thanks. If you have a guest suggestion or topic suggestion or interested in working on the show or just have some thoughts you want to share about the show, email us at chuck at thisishell.com. Or if you want to send us actual stuff in the actual mail, mail it to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. That's This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. Coming up, following on the heels of the UN Climate Summit, a new oil pipeline is being constructed in rural or in Eastern Africa. We will also tell you what's happening this week on our exclusive Patreon podcast, which you can subscribe to at patreon.com slash this is hell. And we will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is what job are you not applying for? What job are you not applying for? Live from late capitalism, where property has more rights than people, this is hell and the property that apparently has more rights than people in East Africa is now owned by major oil companies in cooperation with local governments and international banks and financial institutions. No, the people who recently owned the property have been fairly compensated and promises from the state and oil concerns of protecting the land and many endangered species are, well, suspect. Here to help us understand an economic development plan that will actually contribute to climate change. Journalist Alex Tumu Himbise wrote the floodlight article, No Power to Stop It, Optimism Turns to Frustration over East Africa Pipeline. Alex reports from Tanzania for Floodlight. Floodlight is a nonprofit news organization that partners with local outlets as well as The Guardian to investigate the corporate and ideological interests holding back climate change. And joining Alex is Emily Holden, who contributed to his report. Emily is founder and editor-in-chief of Floodlight. Emily is an investigative environmental journalist with a decade of reporting experience in Washington, D.C. First, welcome to This Is Hell. Alex? Hello, uh, my dear friend. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, doing very well. And welcome to This Is Hell, Emily. Thank you, Chuck. Uh, thanks for the welcome to hell. Yes. <laughs> I don't think I'm welcoming you. I think that you're very well aware of what hell is after all of your decade of reporting experience when it comes to investigative uh, environmental journalism. So let's start with you, Alex. You write a bumpy, mud-splattered road leads deep into Kakumiro District in western Uganda, where the longest heated oil pipeline in the world will pass through its homes, farms, and wetlands. The villagers in the settlements welcomed the project when the route was announced in 2017, hoping that the government and companies involved would buy their land and change their lives for good. Their optimism has since given way to frustration. So, Alex, what drove that optimism more? Misleading, unfulfilled promises by the government and companies behind the pipeline or the economic desperation of those in the region? Was this driven more by uh, uh, unfulfilled promises or desperation? Okay, thank you very much. This is Hell for hosting me. Uh, it's a really a very great opportunity for me, uh, someone who has grown up in a very rural area called Kakumiro District in Western Uganda. Uh, I first of all want to start with uh, thanking my mentor, uh, Emily Holden at Floodlight, and uh, at Journalism Network, more especially Amarita Gupta, 
and uh, James Fan, who uh, have been working with me, uh, you know, extending of such opportunities of reporting to me, and of course uh, the Guardian editors and the, the whole uh, uh, the Guardian for this story. Now, when we talk about the East African uh, crude oil pipeline uh, uh, walking or moving from Kakumiro deep into the villages, where I have been meeting several people who now see the oil pipeline project as a frustration, you know, we, we are looking at a number of issues here. The first issue is uh, the, the, the expectations of project-affected persons have been shattered down. When the government and its partners in uh, the oil industry announced in 2017 that uh, they were going to construct a, a pipeline that uh, would uh, transport oil from the Arbatan region to Tanzania, uh, covering a distance of over 1,443 kilometers, People were very happy. People were uh, expecting to have their lives changed. People knew that once they offer their land for the government and uh, the oil companies to use and construct the oil pipeline, they were going to get money or be relocated to other areas where they would feel comfortable. Now, three years uh, down the road, people have not been compensated. They have not received any single coin for their land which they offered uh, to be used for this project. Now, uh, time has come. Uh, the resettlement action plan is now revealing how much they are going to receive or how much they are going to be paid. And uh, what it has now turned into frustration is that the money they expected is very low. They expected to be given good uh, amount of money but uh, the, the, the government and the East African Crude Oil Pipeline Project are giving them small money. For example, when you uh, check through the story, there is an old man who has got two wives and several children who, has been, who is being given eight U.S. dollars. Now, eight U.S. dollars in Uganda is about uh, 39,000 shillings. This can only buy small, small household things, like uh, not even a blanket, not even a mattress for someone to sleep on. But uh, this is the uh, old man whose land that could be sold at uh, like um, 500 US dollars has been taken and is being given only eight US hundred dollars, eight US dollars rather. So this is where the whole frustration comes and. Uh, when I interviewed these several people, they were like, oh, we wish this project could have passed the other end, or we wish the government could have taken its uh, project and we remain with our land in peace. So uh, that's where the, the biggest frustration is. Secondly, uh, the oil industry is new in Uganda because uh, uh, the, the economically viable oil deposits were discovered way back in 2006 where the government of Uganda, uh, working with the different oil companies, discovered that uh, Uganda had about 8 billion barrels of oil in, uh, in place, in, in that place called the Arbatan region. Now, out of the 6 billion barrels, uh, only 1.4 billion barrels can be recovered. 
Now, the government started uh, a marathon of activities uh, in order to see that the oil is extracted, but uh, it, it has kind of delayed. It has delayed uh, for several years because of issues that the government has been explaining. Now, people see this oil uh, pipeline as a project that has come to, to destabilize their peace. Because if they are not getting the money the way they expected it, if it's not going to change their lives positively, then they, they are frustrated. Another source of frustration, um, I want to talk about this uh, uh, at this moment, is uh, the environmental threats to the local people. Now, people in Uganda have had uh, several uh, environmental threats from other oil-producing uh, countries like Nigeria, where they have had incidents of busting and exploding of oil pipeline because of several uh, factors one in South Africa, uh, and other countries. Now, there is a family where I interviewed a lady who told me that uh, just a, a few meters from her house, just behind her house, it's where the oil pipeline is going to pass. Now, she was puzzled and asking a question like, what if it explodes? What if the pipeline catches fire? Where will she go? She, uh, uh, she talked to oil, uh, to oil companies working with um, the government, and uh, one company that was uh, contracted by the government and the joint venture of uh, the two oil companies, that is China, China National Offshore uh, Oil Corporation and uh, Total Energies, that uh, she wanted to be relocated to another safer place. But uh, they told her that, no, there will be no problem. You can live here even when the, the pipeline is passing uh, through your, uh, your courtyard or through your compound. And uh, she was like, uh, she's not safe with her children. Uh, and she has got animals, she has got uh, cows, uh, goats, and other animals which, which can feed in near the, the place where the pipeline will pass. And she's very much concerned. Uh, another frustration that is coming, most especially to environmental activists is that uh, the oil pipeline is set to pass through a number of um, environmental fragile areas, uh, including the Machijon National Forest Park. Uh, this is a very big park uh, of, animal, of um, animals in Uganda, in Western Uganda, where oil was uh, discovered. And uh, the whole of that park is being operated by Total Energies. Uh, it has very many animals. It's a source of foreign exchange uh, income earning by the government of Uganda uh, because uh, several people, several tourists from different countries do come and visit uh, this park. Now, uh, the question is, they are going to carry out oil drilling from the national park, that is the National Forest Park. The government has provided modalities how the oil will be extracted without tampering with this fragile uh, environment of animals and uh, several birds, which number out to over 400 animal species and 70 uh, species of, of birds. I mean, 400 uh, species of birds and 70 species of animals, including even the most endangered animals like the lions, the rose, child, the giraffes, elephants, buffaloes, hippos, and others. 
And uh, the, uh, civil society organizations, environmental activists are asking the government what plans are there to see that these animals are protected. Why, why can't the government leave the oil uh, there and um, for purposes of saving the animals that have coexisted with the human in that very national park for hundreds of years? So, uh, again, Alex is saying, pointing out that, uh, Emily, Alex is pointing out that uh, the, there's frustration over the compensation, there's frustration over the dangers that locals are facing, and there's frustrations over the uh, pipeline going through environmentally fragile areas. Uh, Alex also writes, uh, Emily, that Adrin Tugume 53 depends on her land to feed her 10 children and sell bananas, cassava, beans, and maize. Although construction is not yet underway, she has, began, she has been asked to stay off the portion of land where the pipeline will eventually be built. And uh, Alex quotes her saying, I was stopped from using my land for three years. It is where we get food for our children. We land, my land has uh, several crops, trees, and herbal medicines, which I use to treat people locally. I'm not happy at all. I wish they could get another route for this pipeline and leave our land. We are only going to suffer instead of gaining and getting our lives changed. So Emily, how much of a choice did locals have in determining the path of the pipeline? And in your uh, in similar situations, which you have investigated, how much choice do locals generally have when it comes to the pathway of oil pipelines? Well, it really depends on where we're looking, but the investigations that uh, we've conducted have shown that particularly in lower income and, and uh, middle income or developing nations, uh, people don't have much of a say at all. And when they disagree with the route or they think they aren't being fairly compensated, there isn't always an, an option for them to pursue to to try to get that sorted out, to um, try to get more equitable treatment, at least to get more compensation for what they're being asked to do. And when Alex uh, started talking with us about the stories, uh, you know, we were really looking to tell a story of the environmental impacts, the climate impact in particular of this project that's happening at the, the same time that world ex experts say that, you know, oil and gas development needs to stop now to keep temperatures from rising more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. Um, so, so that's been very clear. This project is in com complete disregard of that. Um, but when we started talking to Alex, we felt that there was a real human element here that uh, a story that isn't told as much about what happens on the ground to people that are in the path of these projects um, who don't have someone they can go to to try to get get justice or, um, you know, get more money or, like Alex said, some residents wanted to try to find a place to move that they felt would be safer. They weren't able to do that either. Um, so I think that what's so compelling about this story is that Alex was able to go through each of those impacts and help readers understand not just what is happening environmentally to, you know, species that maybe, you know, we as Americans have, have never seen or interacted with or landscapes that we, we will never get to see either, but people who we can really identify with who um, really disagree with this project and didn't have any say in it. 
And Alex, you also uh, quote Edison Basheja, a 73-year-old who was vowed never to accept the, the 39,715 Ugandan uh, shillings, which you said pointed out before, it's about $8 U.S. he was offered for his land. You quote Edison saying, I have two wives and several children and grandchildren. Our survival depends on land. So Alex, is the pipeline going through subsistence farm land more than it is going through land owned by large landowners? Are subsistence farmers more susceptible to having bad land deals from the government and corporations supporting the pipeline? Okay, thank you very much. You are right there on that very question. Uh, Much of the population here in Uganda, most especially in the rural areas, is uh, uh, consists of peasantry farmers, subsistence farmers, who grow food for home survival and uh, little for commercial purposes. Now, when you look at uh, the map of the whole pipeline, right away from the Arubatan Rift Valley to Tanzania, much part of Uganda is uh, is farmer's land or peasant's land. Like, uh, uh, for example, this very man uh, grows local food like maize, uh, cassava, beans, and uh, part of his land was totally earmarked for that very project. Now, the remaining land is very small. It cannot sustain his uh, uh, big family. He has children, grandchildren, uh, all living on that very land, and uh, two wives. So uh, uh, his land, or the remaining land, and the land that has been taken, uh, surely, looking at the money was also offered for his land. It's very small for his survival as a uh, as a local person now when we talked uh, or when i talked to people from uh, the um, the pipeline project uh, those who are dealing with um, uh, the compensation resettlement and the relocation of uh, affected individuals they were like uh, the compensation rates are, are judged and uh, rated according to the national rates and uh, the district rates the local people say that land is very expensive these days. You know, the population in rural areas in of Uganda is increasing. And uh, the more the population increases, the more land becomes very expensive and valuable. So people are saying that taking their land for that small amount of money is, uh, is, uh, is very dangerous to their lives and survival. And uh, they, they don't like it. I talked to a man who has been uh, moving from local offices from time and again, trying to seek for, for their guidance and uh, for their uh, uh, help, but he has not been helped. Um, we, they told us on record that uh, the government and uh, its partners have been telling them to, to go with what they have been provided. They have nothing to do. Like one man said that... Uh, after looking at uh, the so-called the disclosure forms, he was frustrated, but he was, told, he was told that he has nothing to do because he cannot sue the government as an individual, or he can only just accept what he has been offered to him and maybe start struggling to see that uh, life continues. Uh, and you know people fear to confront the government as individuals uh, because the government is very powerful and uh, some officials are not willing to make sure that they have sat down with uh, the project-affected persons and come up with other figures which are somehow favorable to the local people. 
Well, Alex, let me follow up on that with you real quick. You also write that local activists fighting the project have been arrested and detained in recent months, and they say they are the target of intentional intimidation by the government. Ugandan authorities claim the group is violating registration laws for non-governmental organizations. So, Alex, are, are you not allowed to protest or engage in activism without being registered as an NGO in Uganda? How criminalized is protest against the oil pipelines in Uganda? Uh, first of all, uh, recently we had um, an organization called Afiego. I wrote about it. Uh, the executive director of Afiego and uh, some of the members of this organization, uh, it's, an, it's an environmental activist organization that has been working in the oil region for some years. Now, they were arrested and questioned for operating illegally. Uh, the government claims that uh, Afiego and uh, its leaders uh, had uh, breached the minimum operating standards of non-government organizations. But um, Afiego, according to Dickson, uh, Dickens Kamgisha, uh, its executive director, he claimed, or he told me that, uh, you know, the government was trying to use a very strong hand to, to suppress these voices that are coming out to talk about environmental issues that are related to the oil project. So uh, apparently, uh, NGOs claim that uh, the government does not want them to come out strongly and uh, talk about uh, some of these uh, uh, shortfalls uh, in the oil sector, or in the oil project, in the pipeline project. But the, at the same time, the government claims that these NGOs are operating illegally. But some people have been arrested and uh, the, their cases are still uh, being investigated by authorities here in Uganda. And Emily, Alex also writes that the pipeline could jeopardize community water sources. Uh, it's going to pass through habitats of at-risk species. It's going to pollute the air, and its construction will be intrusive and noisy. In Tanzania, local government authorities have admitted that environmental disturbance is inevitable. So, Emily, it's bad for local farmers who are not getting fairly compensated for land they can no longer use. It's bad for at-risk species, a threat to water and air quality, and disruption of life, and the government admitted it was inevitable. So to you, Emily, what explains why this pipeline was approved in the first place? Well, this project is good for the oil companies that are going to profit off of it. So we see that the, the pipeline itself is being built to go to a port out of Tanzania for, for export. So this isn't even oil that's going to be used locally. Um, with the best estimates that we have of the climate emissions from this project, um, from how the oil will be burned over the years, uh, this is about the equivalent of uh, about 7 million passenger vehicles driven for a year, um, which is really, really significant. And, you know, we, we see this project coming at the same time that, you know, one of the uh, two companies um, running this, Total, which is a, a French company, um, you know, they're making climate commitments and advertising about their climate goals, but this is really in direct conflict with that. And, and so it's pretty clear that the motivation here is a profit motivation. And Alex, you also point out that uh, Total is planning to drill more than 400 oil mines at its 
Telenga project, which is inside the ecologically fragile national park. China National Offshore Oil Corporation will develop its Kingfisher project with 31 wells, about 90 miles to the south. Pipelines from the two sites will merge at Kesenyi, where oil will be processed and separated from other fluids. And as you were pointing out, then it will be pumped across the Albertine Rift Valley to begin its journey to a port in Tanzania. Along the way, the pipeline will cross the basin of Lake Victoria, Africa's largest lake, which is an essential watershed for more than 40 million people in the region and feeds into the Nile. So, Alex, what would be the environmental impact if the if the pipeline did leak into Lake Victoria's basin? How much of an effect, how much of an impact would that have on not just the Democratic Republic of Congo, not just Tanzania, not just Uganda, but all of eastern and western Africa? Okay, thank you very much. Um, when uh, you look at uh, the resettlement action plan and uh, the environmental impact assessment report uh, for both Tanzania and the Uganda parts, you can see that uh, the, the pipeline is going to pass through very many homes, homesteads. So in, in any case of leakage, uh, very many people are at risk. Then uh, when you look at, uh, uh, you, you earlier talked about uh, water sources. You know, in Uganda, we commonly depend on open water sources for both animal and uh, domestic use. We also have some, uh, uh, you know, protected water sources like uh, boreholes. Uh, I don't know if you have ever seen or heard about a borehole. Uh, they, they are common sources of water in Uganda. Uh, so in any case, in any case, the, uh, there is there happens to be a leakage or uh, some kind of explosion of the pipeline. Uh, very many people will be greatly affected. Uh, when you look at uh, the Lake Victoria Basin, it's surrounded by thousands or millions of homesteads. Uh, then uh, it's also a source of livelihood. You know, uh, people, people carry out fishing activities. Uh, uh, yeah, along the uh, Lake Victoria. So in case there happens to be an environmental catastrophe resulting from the pipeline, uh, people's livelihoods, like fishing, will be at uh, a very great risk. And uh, the fish here uh, serves very many countries. Tanzania, the lake is shared by Tanzania, Kenya, the other side in, in the eastern part, and uh, the largest part uh, being shared by uh, Uganda. So uh, you, you can see that any environmental threat resulting from the oil pipeline is, uh, uh, will have automatic and uh, dangerous uh, effects on, uh, first of all, the lives of people who live around, uh, around that uh, Lake Victoria Basin and their livelihood, fishing activities. And can I add to that? Yeah, go, go ahead, Emily. Um, so... A leak or an accident is one issue, and that could be really devastating to a number of ecologically sensitive areas and also to the water supplies that Alex was just talking about. But this project is going to disrupt the natural environment, regardless of whether one of these sort of emergency incidents ever happens. So just to build the project, um, the companies are going to have to clear cut like a 30-meter a wide sort of corridor 
Um, and in Uganda already, um, some officials have uh, recognized that this is a risk to some endangered species and even um, begun to to move some of those <laughs> animals to different areas because of that. So, you know, this is something that's going to be disruptive and environmentally damaging, you know, just in the immediate term, even if the companies follow all the parameters that they say they're going to and they never have a leak or accident. Um, and, you know, we do know that that's not uncommon for that to happen, too. So that, that's also a possibility. And then on top of that, there will be impacts to, you know, not just the environment where this is built, but all around the world with these contributions to climate change and more um, and intensifying extreme weather and rising heat and rising sea le level and increased flooding and, um, you know, more uh, like worse droughts. So this is something that's going to affect living creatures everywhere because of the scale of this project. It's a 900 mile long pipeline. And that is just it's really huge in scale. Um, and it's really just, I think, difficult to wrap your mind around if, if you haven't seen um, the kind of area that that would cover. And uh, Emily, Alex also points out that the $20 billion project forecast to deliver 1.7 billion barrels of crude oil starting in 2024 or 2025 comes as world leaders are aiming to divest from fossil fuels. The pipeline will contribute to the climate crisis, as you were just pointing out, locking in more oil use and planet heating emissions for decades to come. So, Emily, what does the pipeline reveal to you about the state of the fight against fossil fuels emitting greenhouse gases that are leading to climate change? What does it tell you about the fight against climate change globally uh i mean i think it's it, it's really not it's not good and i think that we have to be really clear-eyed about that especially as journalists when we talk about the climate crisis um there is a lot of reason for hope this is something that could turn around we already are seeing uh, a lot of damages from climate change we could stop that but it would require a lot of change a lot of change soon and we aren't really seeing countries committing to that. We definitely aren't seeing the industry committing to that because the way to make those changes would be for the oil and gas industry to eventually just not exist. Um, and that is not where the conversation is at all. We just had uh, international negotiations in, in Glasgow. Um, and, and during those, uh, a really groundbreaking investigation came out from the Washington Post that found that all of the numbers that have gone into where we think emissions are and what countries are contributing are actually wrong. Uh, a lot of countries have been underreporting the greenhouse gas emissions that, that they are contributing to the climate crisis. And that means that the numbers are even worse than we thought. So we've already seen uh, global heating that has resulted in about, it's, it's one, more than one degrees Celsius. Um, we're quickly approaching 1.5 degrees Celsius. And we know that the impacts that we'll see um, are, are going to get much more severe at, at that point. So um, there would really have to be a significant turnaround uh, for the world to be on track to avoid that. Well, Emily, do you know if uh, the projects like the Uganda pipeline were a focus of discussion at the recently concluded UN climate talks in Glasgow? Because there were reports of protests against pipelines, but were they actually discussed during the summit by official summit attendees? I, I'm sure that they were. Um, it, it's a little bit harder to know precisely what's discussed behind closed doors, but we do know that like this pipeline in particular was brought up at a number of side events and is something that 
uh, advocates, you know, not not just in Uganda and Tanzania, but around the world are, are really concerned about because this is such a, a huge scale project. It's brand new and it would lock in oil use for many years to come. Alex, you also write that in the Murchison Falls National Park in Uganda, heavy trucks and road construction machinery are generating noise and appear to be fighting for space with animals. The Ugandan government has argued that the paved roads will attract tourism, but environmental activists view the asphalt roads as a mean to make oil extraction easier. So, Alex, if the pipeline threatens protected areas, could that be harmful to the tourism they supposedly are helping out? Or are these protected areas inaccessible to tourists at this point? Okay, thank you very much. You know, when uh, several activities of um, uh, the first stages of oil exploration in, in Uganda, uh, uh, some of activities uh, started in the, in the National Park. That is uh, the Matijan Falls National Park which has got several oil wells and uh, that are being operated by uh, Total Energy. Now, I visited the park uh, several times, but uh, recently when uh, I went there, I found several trucks, heavy trucks operated by uh, Chinese. There is a Chinese uh, company, that is the uh, China uh, Communication Construction Company, CCCC, uh, which is opening up and paving uh, the once truck roads, uh, dusty roads, they are now tamak. They, they, they are tamaking them from uh, a place called uh, Budongo Forest uh, through uh, the Nile River up to uh, the, the National Park uh, across a district called Inoya. Now, the government says they are opening these roads to ease transport uh, across the National Park. Activists are like, no, these roads have been there. Before the discovery of oil, the government had no, had no any plan of tamaking them. So uh, the people are like, no, the, the, these roads are being paved for, uh, to ease uh, movement of heavy machinery that will be uh, used in oil uh, extraction activities. Now, the, 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 the fear is that uh, once oil extraction starts, it will interfere with the lives of hundreds of animals in this park, which will probably have a very negative impact on the tourism sector in Uganda. However, I talked to Grolia Sevikali, the corporate and public relations manager of Petroleum Authority of Uganda. She was like, you know, the, the uh, oil activities in the national park will not affect the will not affect the the, the ecosystem the the, the, uh, the lives of animals the you know precious plants there in the national park some animals once the government knew that uh, oil activities were going to take place some animals were shifted to other parks for fear of having them dead or greatly uh, uh, affected and uh, the question from activists is how is the government going to strike a balance between extraction of oil, which is exhaustible, which will end any time, and animals that have been uh, uh, a source of income through attracting tourists from all over the world? So that's where the, the question is. And uh, activists are not really satisfied with what the remedies the government is providing in as far as this matter is concerned. 
In, in a report I saw, Emily, at Manga Bay, they reported in April more than 12,000 families will be displaced from their ancestral lands to make way for the pipeline. Questions remain about whether they will be adequately compensated. A 2020 report co-produced by Oxfam that Alex also mentions in his writing and other rights-based organizations found that people likely affected by the pipeline in Uganda and Tanzania did not have adequate information about timelines, compensation procedures, and the social and environmental risks involved. The mega project meant to secure the future of populations in the two countries has created greater uncertainty for those whose lives will be most disrupted by it. So, Emily, when I hear about mega projects, I cannot help but think somehow the World Bank is involved. Is there involvement by international financial organizations other than the corporations, Total and China, National Offshore Oil Corporation, or the governments? Oh, absolutely. I mean, behind all pipeline projects, there is finance. Companies are, are rarely going to go um, out on a limb on their own and, and be able to finance their, their own projects like this. Um, and that's something we write about frequently, too. Um, there's been some pressure from the opponents of this project for um, international banking institutions to, to drop their, their support for this in particular. Um, that's something we've written about in the U.S. as well, where you've seen um, a similar campaign against the, the backers of, of Line 3, the, the large pipeline um, that's being built, uh, including through, through Michigan right now. Um, and and so what you what you usually hear is um, a, a lot of the banks that will contact um, either they won't confirm that they are backing a project like this or they'll say well we've you know yes we've invested in that company but only only in the company not in the specific project um, so it, it's really difficult to to pin them down and get them to answer questions about why they're doing this I think also you know we've written a lot at floodlight about how oil companies are advertising their their climate goals um, and how they're trying to decrease some of their kind of uh, internal emissions. And, and that un unfortunately gets them clout with these these banking institutions and gives them some some cover because it, it appears like they're trying to do the right thing when really a lot of these goals don't do very much at all in the scheme of things. Um, and, and so you, you do really see a, a movement right now um, from opponents of these projects to focus more on who's putting the money into them. Um, and, and unfortunately, there's not a lot of transparency around that either. And it is a, a real focus of uh, a lot of upcoming investigative journalism. And Alex, the article that I was just citing to Emily, that Manga Bay article also states, the prospect of oil spills tarnishing this wilderness and the absence of assurances about mitigation measures have fueled resistance. The green lighting of the project and the absence of final environmental and social management plans drawn up through proper public consultation has alarmed many. In March, in response to growing pressure from green groups, the French oil giant Total announced that its drilling activities in Murchison Falls National Park will be restricted to 1% of the park's area and that it would bankroll a 50% increase in the number of rangers to bolster conservation efforts. That this concession failed to placate critics. So, Alex, in your opinion, why is limiting construction to 1% of Murchison Falls National Park and bankrolling a 50% increase in the number of rangers addressing conservation efforts, why is that not enough, in your opinion? Oh, thank you very much. Now, um, looking at the way things are done here, the only question is uh, the, how will the government, through its regulatory body, that is the Petroleum, uh, Petroleum Authority of Uganda, 
would it be able to enforce and ensure that uh, these specifications of one percent in the uh, environmental fragile area and uh, increase uh, uh, according to the fragility of the area will the government be able to make sure that it is enforced we have seen several projects that uh, come and uh, leave more harm especially uh, uh, to the community so when you look at uh, the oil industry being a new uh, kind of activity that is going to be taking place or that is already taking place in Uganda, people have the fear. Will these uh, uh, companies respect their word? Will they be able to implement every state of regulation that will be in place? Or they will come to a time and go overboard what was one percent becomes like 10 percent becomes like even 20 percent uh there are some other allegations that are already being investigated by police about to you know uh, uh smuggling and poaching of uh, precious animals in some key areas of national park that the government is uh trying to investigate some incidents with one of the companies so um relating to that Will these companies respect their word? Will they respect the recommendations in the environmental impact assessment reports? Will they have to go according to the, the plans that are already in place? So th th that's where the fear is. If they can respect that, and uh, the government is also able to put them to task to ensure that all regulations are followed, then we can wait and see uh, how the whole thing is going to uh, unfold. Otherwise, it's very early to make conclusions now, no special interest to respecting the environmental uh, protection regulations at, at, at this moment. And Alex, you also mentioned that Gloria Sebakari, a spokesperson for the Petroleum Authority of Uganda, said a number of biological baseline surveys were being undertaken in an effort to understand the behavior ranging patterns and habitat utilization of involved species. And then you quote Sebakari saying, the information from the studies is being used in designing appropriate mitigation measures for the impacts of oil and gas activities on biodiversity, monitoring wildlife population dynamics, and also in the preparation of species-specific management plans. And the Manga Bay article quotes Total CEO Patrick Puyane at the signing ceremony of the pipeline deal on April 11th, attended by Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni and Tanzanian President Samia Suluhu Hassan. Uh, Puyane said, our commitment is to implement these projects in an exemplary and fully transparent manner. Uh, Total is also taking into the higher consideration the sensitive environmental context and social stakes of these onshore projects. So, Alex, in your opinion, to what extent is there oversight and enforcement to make certain the Petroleum Authority of Uganda and Total and the Chinese concern live up to their promises? Are there promises of uh, compensation or for any environmental losses are those promises do you see any indication that they will be kept first of all the the first indication is the over delayed payment uh, of people's compensation packages uh, the first indicator the first red flag that shows you that uh, these people are not likely to be uh, committed to whatever they are telling Ugandans Another second red flag that we are already seeing is undervaluation. You see, in such projects, in my opinion, I would believe 
that uh, there should be a win-win kind of situation whereby you need the land for the project because at one point you are going to make uh, profits. Uh, then you also need to leave people uh, who are going to be affected by that very project uh, in good terms with you. You need to leave uh, people uh, in good life. I mean, don't leave their lives changed for bad. So currently, when you interview several affected uh, uh, people, they will tell you that uh, the money they are going to be given is not enough. The money is not enough. So those are so far two red flags that we are already seeing. These two red flags are testing the depth of commitment by these companies. What will happen when such kind of big calamities uh, happen uh, as a result of their project? Uh, I have personally have not seen any kind of plan. And even when you go to the website of East African Food Oil Pipeline, there are several frequently asked questions. But the question of compensation in case people are affected by any kind of catastrophe arising from the, uh, from the project, it's not there. You cannot see it there. Uh, what you can only see is uh, the information about the project, how far they are gone, the benefits to the local people, and many other things. But uh, when it comes to the mitigation of uh, environmental hazards arising from that very project, they are not clear. There is not any kind of clear plan or indication that has been shown or told to the people. Emily, Alex writes that the Petroleum Authority of Uganda maintains that the oil companies have secured all the necessary environmental and social impact approvals to move forward with the project. So the people in the region are at risk due to the pipeline's potential problems. Emily, how much are the corporate and government officials at risk? Locals are potentially risking their lives. What are investment banks, international financial institutions, corporations, and governments risking? Well, uh, they're really at risk of approving infrastructure that could be obsolete in the coming decades. Uh, You know, I I think the, the oil industry works really hard to make sure that we don't talk about it this way. But what the science shows us is is that um, this is an industry that has to end. It's not compatible with the climate crisis uh, if we want to avoid the worst of it. Um, and, and I think that you, you hear a lot, well, we can make it work, we can capture emissions, we can offset them, but there's only so much of that that can be done. The technology is not really there, it's not scalable. Um, and I think that the, the real risk here is that um, the institutions financing this, um, you know, they could put a lot of money into it and they could not get the return that they're expecting. Uh, and I do think that you see the markets starting to slowly move in that direction. You see some investors starting to understand that. Um, but I, I really doubt that it, it would be the, the oil companies themselves that would lose on this deal. I think that they're probably going to be fine. Um, I think that probably the financial institutions could could be fine too. And what we see over and over again when an industry does collapse is that it, it's ultimately the public that ends up paying for that. Alex, the Manga Bay story article that I was pointing to earlier, it states that in March, an open letter signed by more than 250 civil society organizations called on 25 commercial banks not to finance the project. The campaign led two of Total's key financiers, Barclays and Credit Suisse, to deny any intention of funding the East African crude oil pipeline. Environmentalists point out that the economics of investing in fossil fuels just don't add up. The open letter, Alex, states that the whole world is waking up to the fact 
fact that we need to stop burning fossil fuels, and as a result, the price of oil will continue to plummet. Rather than betting its development on a dying industry, we need to recognize that East Africa's economic strength comes from the region's biodiversity, heritage, and natural landscapes. So environmentalists think this is a bad idea when it comes to an economic development. If that is the case, then what is driving the government support for a bad development model? I, I guess my bigger question, Alex, is, is it a good idea financially for Uganda, Tanzania, and other East African nations and economies? Is this a good idea, at least temporarily? Is there anything that's a good idea for this when it comes to the bottom line of economics for the region? Oh, okay, thank you very much. Now, when you look at um, the, the whole of East Africa, more especially like um, uh, our own here, Uganda, the most economic activity, uh, economic activities, uh, agriculture. Uganda has uh, depended on uh, agriculture for very many years. Now, the government, and uh, even in Tanzania, they have that. They have that great feeling that uh, oil extraction will add a very strong uh, boost in uh, in the economic activities and also the the income of the country. Now, here comes a situation whereby the many environmental activists all over the world are pushing for clean energy. Countries are supposed to use or resort to using clean energy. Now, Uganda is now pushing for uh, what I can call dirty energy, the, 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 the fossils, using uh, fossils. Uh, before I, I worked on this story, our president had uh, issued um, uh, an article. Uh, which was about forcing Africans down one route of energy production uh, will hinder the fight against poverty. Now, like in Uganda here, they think uh, once the government starts getting money from oil, uh, that money will help in fighting you know, against poverty, ensuring there is uh, uh, good infrastructure, good hospitals, and uh, good schools. So uh, the, the only issue here is like, how are they going, how is the government going to strike a balance between exploration and extraction of oil, uh, which is, you know, one of the areas that uh, emits a, a, a lot of carbon, and uh, economic development of the country. For example, currently in Uganda, the price of uh, fuel is high. Uh, fuel prices are high. Both at the pump, even when you go to, uh, the, you know, petrol stations, you, you know, the uh, petrol diesel, the price is high. Now the government thinks that uh, once we start ex uh, 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 drilling oil, uh, the oil will boost the the economy and also ensure that um, other industries related to oil uh, refinery. Uh, can also grow, like the fertilizer industry, the the plastics industry. So the, the government is uh, the government has got uh, a lot of expectations in as far as uh, the economic growth from the oil uh, drilling is concerned. 
Emily, Alex also points out that several local non-governmental organizations launched a lawsuit against the project, alleging that it poses imminent dangers to the climate, environment, biodiversity, and human rights. Historically, Emily, how much success do these kinds of lawsuits have in at least stalling pipeline projects? Is there a record of success or failure with such lawsuits? We're seeing more success with those lawsuits here uh, in the U.S., at least being able to stall projects for long enough that they become a real headache for the company or they're no longer as economically viable as they were in the beginning. Um, but that's that's less effective um, in, in, in other countries. Um, and, you know, one other story that we we worked on at Floodlight about this is um, the legacy of pipelines built through uh, Nigeria and how right now uh, communities are really struggling to be compensated or get the companies that that built them where they're being their spills happening now to come back and and clean them up and pay for that um, and and watch them and keep that from happening. Um, And so this is really, um, you know, this is, you know, as Alex was saying, it can look like there could be a lot of short term economic benefit for a country to um, invest in a project like this to allow it to happen. But you really have to weigh that against the, the long term cost to the environment, to the climate. Um, and to, to what the, the country um, and the officials there, the public, are, are going to be s- stuck with um, in the end. So, you know, it's not just uh, the difficulty in, in fighting these projects to stall them, but it's a, there will be legal battles over the legacy of this infrastructure for many, many years. And Alex, you point out that local frustration over the project is not just about money. For many, this upheaval is not an entirely new experience. Some in Kakumiro were resettled there in 1992 when their lands were acquired to create the Impokia Forest Reserve. The oil project has now plunged communities into land conflicts as wealthy individuals have shown up to claim properties that people have been living on for decades. Are these properties in the path of the pipeline? And if so, Alex, why would the wealthy be wanting to claim these properties? Okay, thank you very much. This is um, a very uh, serious issue here in, uh, in the whole of Uganda, in fact, uh, because uh, the land tenure and ownership system in Uganda is far different from Tanzania. In Tanzania, the government has got more power or more powers on land Whereas in Uganda here, the government uh, has power but limited by the constitution under the Uganda Land Act. Now, uh, specifically in the Kakomero district, in 1992, uh, thousands of people were uh, uh, transferred from a place called Mpocha Forest Reserve to a place called Bugangaizi in Kakomero. Now, people were settled by the government in Kakumiro, but the government did not give them land titles or certificates of land ownership uh, showing uh, land tenure and uh, land security or their land, their security on that land. Now, this, uh, this is a place which has got uh, historical uh, issues. Like, uh, the, the land here was formerly uh, owned by some people who were pushed to go back to their kingdom, they called the Buganda. Now, these people in Uganda, we call them absentee landlords. They own land, but they don't stay here. Now, their land was used by the government to settle the migrants from Mpocha Forest Reserve. Here comes the time the government is announcing that the pipeline is going to pass through Kakumiro district. 
people are going to be compensated for their land and all belongings uh, on their land. Now, the original owners of this land have started coming with land titles which they got way back in 1980s, 1960s, up to even uh, to 1920s. Uh, they come with land titles and claim ownership of land, which has been earmarked for the pipeline. Now, once they claim for that land, they cause commotion. The settlers or the squatters, we call them squatters here in Uganda, uh, they, they start asking questions. We have been on this land since 1992. How come that you are coming to tell us uh, that you, you are the true owners of this land? So uh, there are court cases so far. Uh, of, of land conflicts in, in some courts here, whereby uh, rich people are coming to claim land, which land is now used for settlement by local people who have no land titles. They are asking government to come in and help them to give them land titles. Um, but, um, the government recently had started a process called um, systematic land demarcation, but uh, it, it's taking long and the project is advancing at a high rate, and uh, they believe that they may not get land titles. And uh, to, for your information, in Uganda here, when someone has got a land title, he is the land owner. Then for someone who is settling on land without a land title, you are a squatter. Now, what happens when time for compensation comes? But someone with a land title takes a bigger percent, which is about to 60%. Now, the squatter only takes 40%. People are taking it, are looking at it like uh, some kind of, you know, uh, uh, intimidation. How can landowners with land titles get uh, that kind of highest percent and for them get uh, the, the lowest percent of, of, of 40? So that, that's why people are not happy. They believe and they think that it could have been sorted out by the government before even planning to 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 pass the pipeline through the alarm. We have been I have one last question for each of you. We have been speaking with journalist Alex Tumu Imbise, who wrote the floodlight article, No Power to Stop It, Optimism Turns a Frustration Over East Africa Pipeline, and Emily Holden, who contributed to the report. You can follow Emily on Twitter at Emily H. Holden, and you can follow Alex on Twitter at Tumu Alexander. That's T-U-M-U Alexander. One last question for each of you, and I promise we do this with each and every one of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask you may hate to answer or our audience might hate your response let me start with you alex because this is a follow-up to your response just now about how wealthy landowners are taking advantage of this situation could this pipeline ignite a class war or even a civil war or any kind of uprising in the areas where the pipeline is planned to be built alex uh, what I can tell is that um, when uh, people's questions are not answered very well, uh, like according to what I got from one of the elders in the village, is that uh, people are going to stand up with one voice and they say no to hell with the pipeline, let it go somewhere, and uh, that could uh, catapult or trigger some kind of, you know, uh, a confrontation between uh, the local people 
under the government. So uh, th there is a need for all these questions to be listened to, uh, to be attended to. Uh, there should be a room for dialogue before this can now uh, uh, expand and uh, uh, bust into something that uh, both the government and the local people may not handle. And Emily, our question from hell for you is, is the pipeline a continuation of or to you, does it in any way resemble continuing colonialism? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's it would be pretty difficult for me to not see that from the outside, particularly editing this story from the U.S. And some of the things that Alex is, is following up on right now and looking into, um, for example, how the, the company is holding kind of seminars for people about how to use the funds that they might receive the compensation for their own land. Um, yeah, I, I think that it, it, it it's absolutely it's it's pretty clear that, um, you know, more powerful nations and corporations tend to take advantage where they can in other countries. And that's why we focus some of our stories on um, on on these this international reporting. You know, most of our work is domestic, but we at Floodlight really want to help um, Americans see and understand that our impact is you know not just what's happening here in the U.S., but everything that we do is uh, propping up and supporting an industry that is able to do these things abroad too, where we don't get to hear about it as much. So, can, uh, Emily, can we? can we address climate change without addressing colonialism, at least in its form today? I don't think so, but there are a whole lot of things that we need to address to address climate change. You know, it's a systemic failure that's part of many, many others. Emily and Alex, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show today. This is a fascinating story, and everybody should check out all of the work over at floodlightnews.org. Thank you both so much for being on our show today. Thank you. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Take, thank you. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. This week's question from hell is, what job are you not applying for? What job are you not applying for? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff asks, aside from the way things are, what do we really have to complain about? Alex, do you have more answers to this week's question from hell? Uh, oh, yeah, we got a few more. Excellent. So question from hell is, what job are you not applying for? What job are you not applying for via DM, email, et cetera, et cetera? Shannon P. says, critical race theorist. <laughs> Our friends at Hypocrite Reader say, emotional labor organizer. And Adam B. says, podcaster. Emotional labor organizer? That's a very good one. Uh, keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our weekly patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell become a subscriber to this is hell on patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell and get exclusive access to our weekly patreon podcast which streams live and is podcast shortly after at the same place patreon.com slash this is hell not only that but you get a special code word which we don't share here on the air, only on the Patreon podcast, that gives you $5 off each piece of merchandise, whether it's the T-shirt, the tote bag, the flash drive, the camping mug, the uh, trucker's cap, the winter beanie, the medical face mask, all that stuff, 
$5 off when you use the special code word that you can only get by becoming a Patreon subscriber. As we are on a short week due to the holiday, this week's Patreon podcast streams live tomorrow, Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. instead of its regularly scheduled time on Friday mornings. Sure, the week may be short when it comes to us only doing two shows and a Patreon podcast instead of three shows in Patreon this week, but it will be long on my worries about getting infected with the virus over the holiday weekend. And it's not just the virus and my bronchitis I want to get off my chest. I still have lingering thoughts on the oh-so-predictable Kyle Rittenhouse verdict. I could have made good money betting he would be found not guilty on all charges. That is, if you can call winning a bet on an unjust but wholly legal verdict good money. Making that kind of bet would be like if you bought stock in Halliburton at the beginning of the Bush administration. Sure, you would have gotten rich off the Afghan and Iraq wars, which were entirely predictable as well. But how much do you want blood money to be part of your retirement plan? And during this season of giving thanks, it's becoming more and more difficult to be grateful for, well, anything. I'm certainly not grateful for the virus, nor am I grateful for the fact that we have such a broken justice system in the United States, but I'm especially not grateful for a justice system being based on vengeance that leads people who truly believe in justice demanding vengeance? Really? In other words, between the virus and the legal legitimation of uh, shooting and killing protesters by vigilantes who want to protect property more than people, I'm a freaking wreck, and you can hear what a wreck I am on tomorrow's Wednesday's Patreon podcast, which is streaming live, and will be podcast at a special time, 10 a.m. Wednesday morning, due to the nerve-wracking holiday. We will also be sharing a classic interview from our archives that cannot be found anywhere else online, and this week's featured interview is from 12 years ago, a conversation we aired on November 21st, 2009, with investigative journalist Prathap Chatterjee, the senior editor at Corp Watch at the time. Prathap is also the author of Halliburton's Army, How a Well-Connected Texas oil company revolutionized the way America makes war on the privatization, the neoliberalization of the U.S. military. Prathop was on at the time to discuss his just-posted Tom Dispatch article, Paying Off the Warlords, Anatomy of an Afghan Culture of Corruption. Who knew a security and redevelopment plan based on corrupting warlords would fail? Oh yeah, Prathop did. Not that the establishment media was interviewing people like Prathop to learn how the U.S. and allies were further corrupting already corrupt warlords, many previously corrupted by the CIA during the 1980s war against the Soviets. Now, this might just be me, but when you're claiming you are bringing democracy to a country and then you bring corruption, that's not a good look for democracy. No matter so many places around the world where the U.S. says they are bringing democracy, it always ends up looking like corruption, and we end up seeing people lose faith in democracy. But if you want to hear my lingering thoughts on celebrating a holiday during a pandemic after the law has proven itself to have little to nothing to do with justice and my potentially misguided view of justice is vengeance, whether it's on the streets or in our prisons, and a 2009 interview on how the U.S. was paying off warlords and spreading corruption instead of democracy in Afghanistan, subscribe to our weekly Patreon podcast that streams live tomorrow, Wednesday at 10 a.m. Chicago time, podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash thisishell instead of our regularly scheduled Friday morning slot do the holiday. Live from Hangover Country, this is Hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. <laughs> Hold I'm sure of it. On I'm sure of it. You know what to do. Be Mildred am I, 
Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Here's a thought experiment. What if capitalism, as a system of production and distribution, isn't the sham we all know it is? I mean, a few people do in fact rise from the working class and even, albeit rarely, from extreme poverty to relative affluence under capitalism. And let's not be greedy. The preachers of capitalism never promised us we could all become billionaires. I mean, of course we can't all be billionaires. That would be a silly promise to make. Capitalism may have internal contradictions, and those contradictions may make it appear silly, but no buts. Let's just leave it at that. Capitalism looks silly because of its internal contradictions, but it would never be silly enough to promise that everyone can be a billionaire. That would be like an army promising that everyone can be a general. An army entirely made up of generals is an absurd concept. Can you imagine an army of all generals like a grand flock of emperor penguins in Douglas MacArthur hats, pipes sticking out of their beaks, waddling around giving orders to no one? Adorable. Can capitalism promise that if somehow able to muster the spirit, charisma, perseverance, Salesmanship, ambition, luck, acceptable looks, able-bodied genetic normativity, and adequate cleverness, everyone could become a hundred thousandaire? No. That would be like an army of mostly captains being ordered around by a handful of generals. Not a whole lot of killing would get done by an army thus composed. It's quickly becoming apparent that we can keep adjusting this analogy until we finally have posited an army that looks just like any old army, a great mass of mostly expendable soldiers taking orders from a few strata of commanding officers to fight and die in massacres. In the case of civilization at large, the soldiers are analogous to those of us whose access to material opportunities and therefore destinies are more or less dictated by those who have made it into the layers of status and privilege positioned above us. So, if capitalism isn't the sham we all know it is because it delivers exactly what it promises, an obscenely unequal social system with the major part of humanity living according to the whims and needs of the economic elite, what really do we have to complain about? I have to admit, I'm stumped. I can almost always find something to complain about, but capitalism's brutal honesty has me nonplussed brought up short, befuddled, speechless, bewitched, bothered, and bemildred, am I. But then again, it could happen. We could, each of us, every human being, wake up in our respective tomorrows billionaires. Just because it wouldn't work in military culture or animated penguin culture doesn't mean it can never happen. We humans aren't animated penguins, and we didn't sign up to be in any army. Well, most of us, anyway. If we signed up at all... We certainly didn't sign up for a future with our planet's ecosystems on the verge of collapse. Wait, I guess we kind of did. Because remember that time when the fossil fuel companies and the collection of politicians they'd bought were divvying up the world and we didn't swarm like Willard's rats on Ernest Borgnine? I'm obviously talking about the original Bruce Davidson Willard, not the Crispin Glover one, and reduce them to shreds. I think that's the point at which we went wrong. Speaking of Ernest Borgnine... A lot of you weren't even close to being conceived when Ernie's TV show, McHale's Navy, was even in reruns. 
The overserious Schlemiel antagonist on that show was Captain Wallace Binghamton, played by Joe Flynn. His character was famous for his nasal apoplexy and the lines, Mikhail and wah, wah, wah. Now, it turns out there's a former lieutenant general who goes by the name of Flynn. Michael Flynn is currently under subpoena by the select committee to investigate the January 6th Insane Clan Festival to crush the election. He is also corporeal host to the spirit of his possible ancestor, Joe Wah, Wah, Wah Flynn. And I mean possible ancestor in the sense that chimpanzees and humans have a common ancestor. I'm not saying Michael Flynn is Joe Flynn's grandchild or that he's the reincarnation of Joe Flynn. He should be so honored as to be the reincarnation of Joe Flynn. I'm saying Michael Flynn is the physical manifestation in our age, this age of mass extinction, an age of collapse of any hope for government in which the people might have a whisper of influence, an age seeing perhaps the final victory of the rule of hoarded wealth from extorted extractive profit. In this sorry age of ours, Michael Flynn is nothing more nor less than the embodiment on earth of the histrionic characterization of Captain Wallace Binghamton from the TV show McHale's Navy. And that, like a working class hero, is something to be. Because Michael Thomas Flynn, former National Security Advisor under twice-impeached, parboiled face D.J. Trump, has come up with his own utopian vision for the future. If we are going to have one nation under God, which we must, we have to have one religion, one nation under God, and one religion under God, said the man who will be played by Willem Dafoe in a future biopic about Melania Trump, tentatively titled Mail Order First Lady. Just imagine, tomorrow we could all wake up millionaire believers in whatever Michael Flynn thinks his religion is. He worships a sphere of candy with the ovaries Ronald Reagan was born with at the center. Did you know Reagan was born with two sets of nascent reproductive organs? Not unusual. And that the doctor flipped a coin to decide which set would stay in and which set would be suspended in a sphere of translucent candy and stored at the University of Chicago Divinity School bookstore in a small glass case inside a terrarium where a couple of turtles are currently living. That's what Michael Flynn says we all need to believe. Or maybe some other form of white supremacist North American Christianity. What would it have been like if the coin toss had gone the other way? Would Reagan have been our first ever woman president, like Maggie Thatcher, except a woman? This is the utopia capitalism never promised, because it was simply incapable of inventing such an inept and grotesque vision even as a last resort effort to maintain world domination. What's the next rank of penguins under the emperors? The bishop penguins, maybe? Imagine we each get our shit together to think, act, look, desire, and believe exactly the way Michael wah, 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 Flynn thinks we should. We wake up one day, each of us a millionaire bishop penguin in a vast society of identical bishop penguins from sea to shining sea, milling around ordering lattes and burritos from no one. And every Sunday, we pack together inside a stadium-sized megachurch to sing songs of praise for Ronald Reagan's candy-coated ovaries. 
That's what I'm talking about. Utopia. The kind of utopia capitalism can't even imagine. No matter how many different narcotics, hallucinogens, opioids, aquarium cleaners, and livestock deworming pastes, it mixes in a cocktail. It takes a visionary like Michael Flynn to take all those drugs and come up with this shit. This has been the moment of truth. Uh, good day. So a couple things on uh, Ernest Borgnine, because when you mention him, I can't think of anything else but Ernest Borgnine. Uh, one of his <laughs> last movies he ever did was an independent film that was done at where I go on vacation every year, Houghton Lake, and they had their oh. world premiere at the Pines Theater. The Pines Theater, everybody, you should just go online and look at images of the interior of the Pines Theater at Houghton Lake, Michigan. It is just filled with so many trophy animals, heads and corpses, and there's a big showcase of a deer that's wrapped around a fawn, a mother deer that's wrapped around a fawn. It's just, it's the most disturbing place you've ever seen inside. So they did this movie, and it's all about ice fishing on Houghton Lake with Ernest Borgnine, and it is unwatchable. Wow. Unwatchable. And they did a sequel after he died so he's not in the sequel, mm. and apparently the best thing about the first horrible movie was Ernest was Borgnine him? being in it. Also, it reminds me of Drew Friedman's comic book, Warts and All, and uh, his graphic novel, or whatever <laughs> you want to call it, comic book, and his depiction of the short-lived marriage between Ernest Borgnine and Ethel Merman, which is also a very d- disturbing images of them having oh sex. Oh, my God. It's I real. can't. I can't it's, even think about that. You know, the really first bad. it's funny that this ice fishing movie, Ernest Borgnine, was it like the old man in the ice or something like that? It's, um, it's a it's a uh, comedy where they're in an ice shanty the entire time to cut ooh. down on production costs. Oh, uh, that'll that'll create hilarity. <laughs> um, the first movie I saw with Ernest Borgnine in it was. Ice Station Zebra. <laughs> Alistair McLean book. Where the bad guy, I'm not going to do any spoilers, but Ernest Borgnine, who plays the Russian <laughs> in the submarine. Wink, wink. <laughs> is not the bad guy. Yeah, go figure. And he gets killed right on the ice. Yeah. Where by, most people uh, die. By horrible sets in that movie. Which um, which was the, the one you were talking no, about? No, the one, one you're talking, talking about. Ice Station Zebra. Really awful sets. It looks. Like, I haven't seen it since I was like five years old. It, I'm, t- I'm not kidding, kidding you. It looks like they're in a sound studio where it's like, you know, uh, where they filmed uh, Lost in Space or Star Trek. It's really, really bad. And never, you never see any steam coming out of anybody's mouth, despite it being in Antarctica, which is problematic. Well, they hadn't invented that special effect yet. <laughs> really? It's called smoking cigarettes. That's what they did for airport. <laughs> did you know that? In the winter, no. winter scenes, when they want to show where it looks like they're cold, they were constantly smoking cigarettes and hiding them behind their backs. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that is really good. That's, pretty... that's what how's our practical special effects, yes. which is a lost art. <laughs> it is a lost art. People don't, you know, people don't. When I see spe- practical special effects in movies like in, uh, oh, what's that John Carpenter movie with the, you know, The Thing with Kurt Russell. Yeah. Those are beautiful, like weird wiggly pieces of rubber oh, yeah. squirting yeah. people and melting 
melting latex on faces and stuff. Very cool. Possibly Kurt Russell's only watchable movie. I don't know. I think uh, Escape from New York is pretty uh, watchable. <laughs> Okay. It's very exciting. But Escape from Los Angeles, how do you feel about the Steve Buscemi surfing scene? Well, that's that is uh let's let's put it this way. It's just a rip off of of, uh Escape from New York. (laughs) And of course it's not as good. Of course not. You know, the first time you hear his name, Snake Pliskin, (laughs) is the only time you're gonna react properly. (laughs) Every time every other time it's like, wait, what? Oh, right. That's that's him. Jeffy? Yeah? Until next time? Oh, by the way, yes, listener, uh, Chuck is also beautiful. <laughs> and Alex, in his way, is quite quite lovely. And all the board operators, my God, we got a bevy of beauteous <laughs> board operators. All right, Jeffy, on that note, stay beautiful. Yeah. Okay. Live in the United States where the law is far too often the crime. This is Hell. Alex, do we have any more responses to this week's question from Hell? Oh, yeah. Just a couple more via Twitter. Uh, let me click on that and bring the music up. Where did my music go? Uh, there we go. What job are you not applying for? What job are you not applying for? It's so via Twitter. Paul Nice G says dishwasher, unpaid intern, prep cook, security guard, unpaid intern again, nonprofit program assistant, delivery driver, or plumber, i.e., every job I've ever had. Please don't make me get another one. <laughs> uh, at Cheeseburgers, congratulations <laughs> on At Cheeseburgers, says district attorney of the metaverse. <laughs> Comrade Acid says, uh, post a link to uh, Gong Farmer. Which is the same job as a night soil farmer, I suppose. Uh, the gong farmer. Uh, White Trash Tom says, Chucks. <laughs> and what job are you not applying for? Old Pal Eat Fart 69 says, Redacted. Oh, that's a pretty good job. All right, so the answers I liked most were Joel saying one of the BS jobs David Graber wrote about. What job are you not applying for? Tynan saying the CEO of Antifa, which is really, really great. I wonder if you get one of those little plaques on your desk that says uh, your name if you get to be the CEO of Antifa. Neil saying Britney Spears money manager. Mason saying stay at home dad. I've never make it past the interview, which implies that he'd be interviewed by his kids and his wife and would not get the job. And Shannon P saying the job that she would not be applying for is critical race theorist that makes this week's winner shannon p for her answer critical race theorist which is a job that you probably do not want to apply for you might want to pursue as a career but a job to apply for not so much thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell alex do we have anyone scheduled yet for next week's set of shows uh let me refresh my email no not yet can i interest you in erica johnson's a cultural biography of the prostate hmm Maybe. <laughs> uh, well, they're all added to the list. Is it uh, my prostate or anybody's prostate? Do we know whose prostate? Not it sure is? how specific the author got on this <laughs> okay. one. I understand George Washington had a wooden prostate. Did you know that? We start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com by revealing this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is the perfect hangover cure, which apparently is a smoothie of coconut, water, kale, celery, cucumber arugula and lemon juice did you know arugula in british is rocket yeah that's that's ridiculous did you know that oh yeah Eh. 
I thought it sounded oddly familiar to me, and I couldn't figure it out when I was looking it up. Uh, that's why I had to figure out it was arugula. Thanks to this week's guests, including Kyle T. Mays, author of An Afro-Indigenous History of the United States, and talk about synchronicity. He quotes Nina Simone on the show, and then in the mail, we get a print from Kennedy Prince of a Nina Simone quote. Thanks to yet, uh, today's guest, journalist Alex Tumuimbise, who wrote the flat Floodlight article, No Power to Stop It, Optimism Turns to Frustration Over East Africa Pipeline, and to Emily Holden, who contributed to Alex's report. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing this week. Thanks to Jess Lipka for running the board. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth and Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History. And special thanks to Richard Norwood and Theron Humiston because, just because. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell when I'll be considering giving thanks during a pandemic and following the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse on all charges. And we will be sharing our 2009 interview with Corp Watch's Prathap Chatterjee on how the U.S. was paying off warlords and spreading corruption in Afghanistan instead of spreading democracy. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show, and that, that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Matt Damon. No. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.